you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. We'll continue walking through prophecy of Isaiah, sometimes called the evangelical prophet or the fifth gospel. I trust it'll be clear why that's the case in a moment. Um, Maybe a bit lighthearted moment here, but uh, just a comment. I gave my wife a choice of... Four different pink ties. Yes, I have that many. I don't know what that says about me. She picked this one. So, um, but um, I like to wear pink when we baptize a baby girl. It's kind of nice. So Isaiah chapter 59, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west in his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. So let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. O God, our God, earnestly we seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We long for your word. We long for your truth. We long for the daily bread that you provide. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is a sermon still a sermon without an introduction? I think so. What if the pastor decides to make the first point an introduction? Well, that may be unorthodox. It may have gotten a bad grade for me in seminary, but it might also keep you on your toes. So the first of our four points is the Lord can save, can't he? The Lord can save, can't he? Verse one, only one verse. Let's look at it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Some of this is repeat. Israel wants to know why God can't hear. And of course, God can hear. He hears everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's God. He is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, said Anselm of Canterbury many years ago. But the way this is written invites some questions. This double set of double negatives reflects the Hebrew syntax. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Why not just say our God is mighty to save? Something like that. Because that's exactly what the audience is doubting at this moment. They are praying. They are fasting. They are doing the right things. But God is not answering the way they want. So what's wrong? They're thinking it's it's obviously not us. We're good, respectable We're God's people. Is God's hand shortened? Is this situation so bad that even God cannot save? And Isaiah's answer, you see, is more sage-like, more poetic than prophetic, more curveball than fastball, and maybe not even a curveball, maybe a slurve, a knuckleball, a screwball, the dreaded Ephus pitch. And if you're lost in the baseball illustration, then you'll understand this. It's not what they expected, this double negative here. It makes them think you have to slow down. You have to listen closely. And as he does so, he's also acknowledging the, the negative thoughts, the doubts, the way that some might be thinking the unthinkable, that maybe God can't save, to which Isaiah says, actually, the unthinkable is still unthinkable. God is not weak, nor hindered, nor hamstrung. And he certainly is not hard of hearing. He knows exactly what you're doing. And in just a second, we'll explain why that is a problem. But back up with me for a minute. Because again, Isaiah seems to know his audience is doubting. And he answers that doubt gently. He gives them hope right away, whether they deserve it or not. The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. He is still the Lord. Notice the capital letters here or the small caps. That's code for Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant Lord who says, as Tony prayed about, I am who I am. I am all sufficient of myself and I will be 
all that my enslaved covenant people need me to be, as he once said to Moses. The great I am can still bring it. He still has his A game. Even if his people doubt, as they appear to be in Isaiah 59. Now, some reminders here. This section, chapters 40 to 66, it's usually called the book of comfort. In this subsection, 56 to 66, it's God's final deliverance. And the audience is usually thought of as the remnant. The faithful ones who hold fast to the covenant as the world around them goes crazy and looks for other saviors. And while that's true, we might need to remember that the remnant are sometimes the weary remnant. The faithful who are hanging on by a thin thread. Who are doubting. Who are wondering if there's still any point. But the God who answers our doubts with a double set of double negatives. He invites some unorthodox questions here. Questions like these. What if it's as bad as you think? What if you're the problem? What if God wants all of us to hope as we lament? And what if God sees the same carnage and is simply setting us up for his grand finale? Now, we've already had an introduction, sort of. Our first point was the Lord can save, can't he? The second point is this, sin can separate. Sin can separate. You see that in verses 2 through 8. God has already answered the doubt. His arm, it's not shortened, that it cannot save. But he, he hasn't dismissed this other easy observation from the text. The world is a mess. Just read verses 2 through 8 if you don't believe me. This was reality in Isaiah's day. For the world around Israel, all the pagans, the outsiders, them. But also for God's people. They were a mess too. Yes, God wasn't intervening. That's true. But it wasn't because God was weak or deaf or whatever. What was the problem? Look with me again. Verses 1 and 2 this time. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Again, figure of speech here when it says, so that God does not hear. But let's let Barry Webb explain this point. God was, quote, unwilling to be used by a community which has no intention of changing its ways. He has withdrawn so that they might taste the full, bitter consequences of their sin. But he hasn't fully withdrawn. He's still engaged, still sending his prophet with a word for his people to repent, to come back to him. Because the remnant will return. They will repent, Isaiah says earlier. God never lets his people sin successfully. But sin they had. And starting in verse 3, you see the specifics. Their hands were defiled with blood. Their tongues defiled with lies and wickedness. Verse 4, they were apparently lying in court. They didn't play fairly in court. They were either bribing judges, giving false testimony, something. And you know, even if you're not guilty of that? Do you ever do similar things to that? Do you ever spin things to suit your case? <laughs> do you ever omit the truths that are just inconvenient to your case, your point, your desired outcome? As we're thinking about that, we can see that the sinfulness of Israel, it ran even deeper. Verse 5, they hatch 
adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. So the first two lines, Isaiah gives two analogies, and then he explains them in the next verse and a half. The adder is a snake. His eggs are symbolic of the fruit of his labors, but it's a poison fruit, you see. Those who eat it die. And if you try to crush the egg, that might symbolize cooking the egg, cracking the egg, cooking it, or simply destroying it. If you do that, you'll get something worse, not an adder, but a viper. You see, sin gets worse. That's why we care so much about sin. You might not be familiar with churches or Christianity. You might wonder, why are you talking about sin so much? Why are you so negative? It's not that we have nothing better to do. But we who have hoped in Christ, we know how dark it is without him. We know that sin is only sweet for a season. In the end, it's a bitter wormwood. It looks alluring like a supermodel or a princess. But in the end, sin looks a whole lot more like Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Ursula is not pretty for those of you who haven't seen it. Sin gets worse from bad to worse. Which is why John Owen so famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Verse 6 goes on, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. The evil in Jerusalem, it says they spin webs, but their webs, they're useless. They can't cover anything. They can't serve as clothing. Sin is not just evil, you see. It's pointless. It's fruitless. Alec Moitier says the sinner's best efforts always leave him or her unsatisfied, unprovided for. In other words, sin separates us from God and his blessings. And that's not because God is mean or withholding. It's because he's good. He knows that nothing less, nothing else but him can satisfy us. So he won't let the lesser things satisfy us restlessness that we feel outside of Christ, the, the Augustine quote that I can't seem to stop quoting lately, that, that, that is a good thing, that restlessness, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment. And just in case you aren't convinced, Isaiah is going to drive his point home even more, a little deeper. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity and desolation and destruction or in their highways. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's quoted in Romans 3. This is what evil looks like, running towards what we want, no matter what's in the way, no matter what innocent person is in the way. And the result is destructive. Destructive for the innocent, destructive for the guilty perpetrator, and destructive for all of society. Verse 8 says they don't know peace. Their lives, their paths, they're crooked. They're crooked and contagious because verse 8, the end of it says, no one who treads on them knows peace. People who imitate them end up not knowing peace either. Sin can separate. In fact, I've undersold my point. Sin does separate. Separates us from God, verse 2 says. It deteriorates society, as we've talked about. It separates us from close fellowship with one another. It breeds suspicion and distrust. It also blinds, if you look at verse 10, which we'll cover later, it blinds people from the truth. 
In summary, sin harms our relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, and with all of creation. This world, you could say, is, can be, as bad as you think. It's as bad as Isaiah's audience feared. And what's even more disturbing, Isaiah says it's true of those inside the covenant people of God. As bad as we think, and we're the problem, our sin is killing us, killing our society. And Isaiah, uh, excuse me, one author says Isaiah holds up a mirror so that they can see themselves as what they really are. And even though this seems dark, despairing, this is where we begin to see hope. Yes, sin can separate, it does. But that is also where lament and repentance can begin. And that leads to our third point this morning. Number three, truth has stumbled. Truth has stumbled, verses 9 through 15. Does that sound like good news? It, it may not, not at first, but you see those words in verse 14. But it is good news because the people are saying it, not Isaiah. You see, they've seen their situation for what it is. They've seen that mirror. And they say, woe is me. I am undone. My society, my whole community is undone. And how do you know that it's the people saying it and not the prophet? Well, because all the smart commentators say it and because the personal pronouns change. It's no longer you, they, they're the accusations from Isaiah. No, now it's we, our, the voice of communal lament starting in verse nine. If you will, I'll read verse eight and then verse nine and see the shift with me. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. You'll notice the word justice pops up again and again in this lament. What's justice? It's Fairness and truth, it's the right state of affairs in present day life. And that's lacking, as they say all this. It's lacking among the world and among God's people. But they want it. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're lamenting because they don't have it. They want light, but they have darkness and gloom. They want truth, but as someone says, truth is the first casualty in a sin-scarred world. Verse 11, they're groaning like... Animals, they want salvation, but no. Read with me verses 12 and 13. It says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Sounds a lot like Psalm 51. It goes on transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Now they are owning, confessing their sin, as well as, quote, the sins of those who are too blind or too proud to confess themselves. Can you confess other people's sins? I'm sure there's a prideful, arrogant, and wrong way to do that. But I don't think this is wrong. It's as if they're saying, we know that our world is twisted and we know that we're at least partly responsible. And the others who are responsible are flesh and blood like us too. 
And then verse 14 says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That last part, it's saying even the few good guys who stand alone, who stand for truth and righteousness, they're soon attacked. They become the prey. Moitir says, this is how things are. Moral absolutes have disappeared. Public morality has collapsed. And individual moral character is under threat. David Wells wrote a series of books about this several years ago. Among the titles were God in the Wasteland, No Place for Truth. All of this, it's enough to make you weep. Israel wept. They lamented over it. As one author says, the good thing about weeping is that we have given up pretending that things are all right or that we have the resources to deal with them. Weeping might make us turn to God as he wanted us to all along. And as bad as things look, oh, and and they look bad, as bad as you think. There are still people who are weeping over sin in this passage, still people who are lamenting. You see, that's good news. Evil doesn't weep over sin. The evil only cry when they want to manipulate you or when they've run out of luck. If someone is weeping over sin, then there's hope. Then apostasy is not complete. Then the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. Then the faithful remnant is still holding the door ajar so that God's light and truth can shine forth and overcome the darkness. On one level, it's as bad as you think, and we're part of the problem. But on another level, it's never as bad as you think. Because there's a redeemer, a righteous champion who's on the way. And because none of this has caught him off guard. It's all part of his plan so that his people and others can see the emptiness of the world and its promises and turn to him instead. It's all part of his plan, a plan that takes many not good things and works them together for good. My friend Miles once said, stop telling me that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. The world already went to hell in a handbasket. It's called Genesis 3. In other words, if God's plan can include something as disastrous as the fall, as Genesis 3, then he can handle Whatever's stressing you out today, whatever you're worried about, whatever thing in your life or in society is going wrong, the truth may have stumbled. God's faithful people, even a weary faithful people, they see it, they lament it, they weep for it. And someone else sees it too, which leads to our last point this morning. Fourthly, the Lord saw and, the Lord saw and, If you're wondering, why didn't he finish his sentence? Yeah, you're right. Because you see, if you know anything about God and his faithfulness to his covenant people, then you should know what comes next. After God sees the plight of his people, like he does in verses 15 and 16, you see, when the Lord sees the distress of his people, we can sit back, behold, and take comfort. What do I mean? Well, look with me at Exodus 2. You've got to flip back a lot of pages to get there. 
Exodus 2, the end of the chapter, starting in verse 23. First, a little context. A new Pharaoh has arisen. He doesn't know Joseph. That's the Hebrew who saved Egypt's bacon. And so Pharaoh is oppressing the Hebrews. He's doing so severely. He's trying to kill the baby boys and more. One baby squeaks through somewhat miraculously. His name is Moses. And when Moses grows up in his zeal to deliver, he kills an Egyptian slave master and he has to flee. So here we are, Israel's only hope. They're Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you will. He is sojourning with shepherds in Midian. And then we pick it up in Exodus 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He saw, and he knew. What did he know? He knew, he knew, he knew, he knew what? He knew what his people needed? Yes. He knew what he had promised to do? Also, yes. And what follows, of course, in Exodus is, more great promises, a great deliverance for his people and a great defeat of their enemies. The 10 plagues, if you have ears to hear it, are God's slow, systematic destruction and defeat of the Egyptian pantheon of the gods. God's people have a strong and mighty savior who loves them and who has a passion for his own glory and his name. And so that is good news for his people. Look with me back in Isaiah 59, at the end of verse 15, the Lord saw it. He saw the truth was lacking. He saw that justice is turned back, the truth had stumbled in the public square. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. God saw, what's he going to do next? There's no justice, no one to save or intercede for his people. Will God stand idly by while this is going on? Is God's hand shortened that it cannot save? What do you think? Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. <clears throat> his righteousness upheld him it kept him going. Derek Thomas sees here a prophecy of Jesus who was to come. He says, what sustained Jesus was his attitude to obeying God's law. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And aren't we glad he did that? Aren't we glad he finished it and fought for us? Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In righteousness, he puts things right. He saves us. That's what he does for us. The rest of the verse talks about our enemies. Our enemies, as I've said before, those who hate us, whom we are called to love. What does God promise them if they never repent? That he'll repay them in vengeance, in zeal. He'll Defeat them. Verses 18 and 19 say, According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Now as Isaiah spoke these words, Israel knew 
God delivered us in the past, sometimes improbably, sometimes spectacularly. It might have been thinking, would he deliver them in the future? Will he deliver us in the future? Because, you know, if you read this, all of this section, it, it kind of looks like one of those grandiose, that could only be true when Jesus comes again kind of prophecies. And that's true. But saying it that way may be too dismissive. It may be putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as I like to say. One author puts it this way, as long as the world endures, deliverance will never be merely a thing of the past. The greatest intervention of God is still to come. Isn't that still true? Isn't that still true? Because if not, why, why be a Christian? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? Unless this world is not all that there is. Now, is that a challenge to us as well as an encouragement? Yes, it is. Like most of this passage, verse 20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord, the Redeemer, the, the Goel. If you remember that word, the Goel, the Redeemer that's better than Boaz. He will come to those who turn from transgression, who turn, who return, who repent. The remnant shall return. The remnant shall repent is great news for those who by God's grace repent. And what about those who never do? Because God's grand finale is coming. That is the hope that sustains his weary people. But with the grand finale also comes the final chance to repent. And what happens to those who don't? God will either kill the wicked with gospel kindness and convert them, or in the end, if they never repent, he'll simply kill them in judgment. And if you fear that's you, then why not repent? Why not fall upon his mercy? Why not humble yourself and let him revive you? Because he who dwells in the high and holy place, he also dwells with him who is contrite and lowly, the one who knows that he needs healing. And if you've already humbled yourself to let him heal you, then hear the hope that he gives. Verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth forevermore. That's a mouthful, but let's step back and hear what it's saying. God's spirit, his life-giving spirit and his words, his truth, they won't depart from his true people, it says. The divine word will mark out the Messiah. It will mark out all of his followers. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as we've said, your, your doubt may be real in the midst of life and its circumstances. It likely was for this group of folks as well who first heard this. Your doubt may be real. You may look at the world. You may be tempted to lose all hope in God. And one level, God acknowledges it is bad in the world, in the church, even in your own heart, it's bad. But if we're part of the faithful remnant, we will weep over all of that. We will repent over our part in it. And God promises to see our righteous tears and our distress, our holy dissatisfaction with the world and all it promises. And when the Lord sees, 
he knows what to do next. When the Lord sees our distress, the distress of his people, we can sit back, behold, and take comfort because the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression, those who turn to God. The Redeemer will come in his hand, his arm. It's not short. It's not shortened that it cannot save. Not too short for your shortcomings in whatever sin you think you can't defeat. Not too short for the problems in the world around you. Not too short for your kids and their imperfections that worry you. Because he's the Lord, the great I am. All that his weary people need him to be back then and now and forever. Let's pray. God, you're good. And what you do is good. Be good to us this morning. Show us how your goodness can meet our every need. Show us how you've met our needs in the past and how you can still do it in the future. Be with us and bless us, not because we deserve it, not because we promise to try harder, but because you're a good and gracious king. And we pray in the name of your son, our savior. Amen.